Well, good morning, church. Thanks again for joining us online today. Um, we're continuing on with our sermon series from the book of Revelation, where we're talking about the letters written to the churches. But I want to start out with a question. How many country music fans do I have out there? Anybody like country music? I like country music. I'm actually going to go back and pick out an oldie uh, to read to you this morning uh, from uh, Hank Williams. It's an oldie. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to uh, uh, tell you a few of the words. I want you to listen to the lyrics. Listen to Hank's wording. It goes right along with my message, believe it or not. Well, why don't you treat me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn-out shoe? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? Why don't you spark me like you used to do? And say sweet nothings like you used to do? I'm the same old trouble that you've always been through. So why don't you love me like you used to do? Well, why don't you be like you used to be? How come you find so many faults with me? Somebody changed, so let me give you a clue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? Some of you maybe recognize that old Hank Williams song, but I'm thinking about most married couples. Uh, when you uh, got married, when you first came together, you were all excited. You probably did spark one another. There were some sparks flying. You probably saw stars. Um, but things changed. Remember how you started out? You thought you were going to be in love forever. Guys, remember how your palms would start sweating at the thought of just holding her hand? And remember when she looked at you with those adoring eyes and adored you, and you wondered how in the world you got lucky enough to have a girl like that? Ladies, you remember uh, the time you would put in to make sure everything was just right, right down to the meals? Nowadays, if it can't be microwaved, uh, he's not getting it. Amen? What happened? Where's the romance? Where's that feeling that used to make you break out in goosebumps? I know what happened. Life happened, right? Life set in. Busyness. Unforgiveness, maybe. Maybe parenting or distractions. Maybe temptation or even exhaustion stepped in and cooled the flames of passion in your marriage. Maybe they quenched your love. Unfortunately, that happens way too often. Today, we're actually going to be talking about the seven churches of Asia Minor as we continue our series. But 7, 000, several thousand years ago, these churches were in existence physically. Not anymore. But we're going to see how the spirit of what's being said about these churches is prevalent in our church today and really prevalent in our lives today and relates to our lives today. I love how Jesus is so specific when he talks about these seven churches when he tells John to write these letters. He names them. All the chur churches. He even names church members. As we talk about these churches, I want you to stop for just a minute and ask yourself, what kind of a member am I? Think about it. What kind of a church member am I? Let me give you a little history as we set this up. The first letter went out to Ephesus. It was a major league city in the ancient world because of its location as a port city along the shores of the Aegean Sea. It was known as, at that time, the marketplace of Asia. So it was a really popular place. It was also home to the Temple of Artemis, or the uh, uh, Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was a center for tourism and trade for sure. I mean, there was uh, four main trade routes that ran right through that city. And with them running right through the city, it was a very prosperous, very wealthy city. Yet it was a very pagan city, because in the middle of this city, they had this uh, pagan temple to Artemis, or to Diana, but today we're going to be talking about the church of Ephesus, and I would say probably more is known about the church in Ephesus than we know about all the other church, six churches combined. And I think a lot of that is thanks to the Apostle Paul. 
Paul, in the book of Acts chapter 18 and 19, he plants a church in Ephesus. Later, he writes a book about that church called Ephesians in the New Testament. And if you remember Timothy in the New Testament, he was a young pastor. He was a pastor at Ephesus for a while. John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, wrote the book of John, wrote the uh, book of Revelation, was an elder in this church. And Ephesus was a city of about 250,000 people located in what's known as modern-day Turkey today. But today we're going to be looking to see what Jesus had to say to this church 2,000-plus years ago. And it's really amazing to see how it actually relates and applies to our lives today and to our churches today. So I want to start reading in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Let me stop here. This term angel actually means messenger. It can also be translated pastor. You probably didn't realize that I was an angel, right? Yeah, my wife calls me an angel all the time at home. Well, maybe not so much. But most Bible scholars believe that in this context, that word angel simply means messenger of God. Just like when it talks about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, verse 10, it refers to John the Baptist as a human messenger of God. But I'm thinking, on the other hand, if these angels of these seven churches are heavenly beings, then that would mean that each church basically had their own personal guardian angel. That kind of makes me question things. Uh, it doesn't make sense for a couple of reasons. Number one, why should he write letters to angels? I mean, are these angels going to get up and stand and read these letters to the congregation? If that's the case, why didn't the angels just read, uh, say the word to the congregation? Why'd they go through John? And secondly, there's nothing in Scripture that backs this teaching up at all. There's nothing that says each church had their own guardian personal angels. So in this context, it's not describing literal angels. We've heard of them like Michael and Gabriel. Those were real angels. He's using it to describe a pastor or a leader of a congregation. Let me keep reading. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So those seven stars are actually the pastors or messengers of these seven churches. And the seven lampstands, as we talked about last week, represent the churches. What Jesus is actually saying to this church is that he walks among these churches. He's in control of all these churches. And the thing is, if we could open and see with our spiritual eyes, we would know that he not only walked among those churches back then, he walks among our churches today. God's never changed. In fact, he's walking among our churches today, in our services today. He's actually with you at home if you're worshiping Him. Whenever we gather to worship Him, He's in our midst. That ought to get you excited. I also love the imagery He's painting here. He is saying that He's holding the pastors in His right hand. From a pastor's standpoint of view, that is very comforting. That's very encouraging to all of our, us pastors proclaiming the Word of God. Now we get to the next part. I'm going to call it the diagnosis to the church. It's in verse 2. He says, I know your deeds. Now, this is Jesus saying this. Uh, that's not always a good thing for him to know our deeds, right? But in this case, it is a good thing. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is thinking that we have to constantly remind Jesus of just how hard we're working for him and for his church. We don't have to tell him any of that. He already knows it. He already sees it. So this church at Ephesus was definitely a busy, hard-working, service-oriented congregation and church. I'm sure their church calendar was full. I mean, totally full with events, programs, meetings, all sorts of uh, outreach programs reaching their community. 
This was a church that was very willing to work hard for the Lord. I think that is so vital for all the churches, even of today, to have people that are willing to work hard for the Lord, hard for the church. I'm thankful that we actually have that here at Victory Church. We have people that start helping out in the parking lot. We have people that meet people at the door as greeters. We have people that help usher people around, help them find their way around the church. We have people that um, run our Sunday school programs. We've got so many wonderful volunteers. We've got maintenance people that help uh, with the grounds. We've got uh, sign language people. I almost call her hand signaling per people. Um, we've got outreach ministry helpers. We've got people who work very hard and volunteer their services so that we can have church every week, so that we can be a church. And Jesus says basically that same thing to Ephesus. You guys are doing a great job. You're a hardworking church. Then he goes on and he says this. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. He's just saying you don't allow sin in the church. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, but that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. He's actually commending the church. He's saying, great job, church at Ephesus. You know your scripture. You have tested those that claim to be uh, apostles uh, by the word of God, which you knew very well, and you found out that they were not apostles. They were basically full of it. Think about the church of Ephesus. They were well-grounded in their word. So, so far, Jesus has some great things to say about this church in Ephesus. You skip down to verse 6. He kind of continues his good words. He says, but you also have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Notice here, he didn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. He didn't say you hate the people. He said you hate their sinful practices, their sinful actions. The thing about our God, he doesn't tolerate sin, and us as Christ followers, he wants us to stand up against sin also. He says you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. And then look at his next wording. He says, which I also hate. This is Jesus saying these words. You know, we like to think of Jesus, as I said last week, uh, as the flannel graph Jesus that we remember from uh, Sunday school. We like to think of him as the meek, mild Jesus, uh, soft-spoken, hair flowing back, blue eyes, uh, holding a little lamb in his arms. Well, it might talk about Jesus a little bit like that in the Bible, but mostly not. I mean, I don't see that uh, description of him very much in the Bible. In fact, right here it says, Jesus hated their practices. In fact, anytime Jesus hates anything, it's some pretty strong language. And I realize this doesn't sound like it's very uh, politically correct. I'll just say it again. Jesus isn't much about political correctness. He's not worried about that. He's not worried about hurting your feelings. He's worried about your soul. Amen? Not much is known about these Nicolaitans other than they were very willing to eat the meat sacrifices that they sacrificed to their false gods and idols. They also didn't think anything of their sexual immorality that they practiced very openly. They didn't even see any connection between their sexual immorality and their spiritual condition at all, which Jesus was totally against. That's the kind of people these people were. Go back to verse 3. Jesus says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The church in Ephesus, you might say, had a lot of enemies. They suffered a lot of persecution, but they didn't give up. They didn't quit. They didn't grow tired. They kept going. So think about this church. Outwardly, everything looks good. Jesus say, is saying, you guys are working hard. You're persevering, and that's awesome. But then all of a sudden, he changes his tune and his tone. How many of you have ever said this to someone? I've got good news, and I've got bad news. Well, Jesus had good news, and he had bad news. 
He starts out with the good news, commending the people on a job well done. Then he starts correcting them. Think about it. He commends them, saying, you guys are doing great. You're working so hard. You're not growing weary. But then he moves right into correction. He says, but you have to change. You've got some things in your lives, and you've got some things in your church that need to change. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. Here he is getting ready to give them a little tap on their heart, saying, you need to pay attention to this. He says, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. King James says, you've lost your first love. It's like Jesus is saying, guys, you've lost that love and feeling. Oh, 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 oh. You know the song. You know the drill. You don't have to finish the song. But it's so easy when you're a new follower of Christ, you're all fired up. You're on fire for God, but then after a while, if you're not careful, you can lose that loving feeling. It's like in marriage. Take the honeymoon, for example. Honeymoon's a good time, right? Should be a good time. Someone said the honeymoon is the time period between the I do and you'd better. Think about that. And have you ever seen a guy open a car door for a, for a lady, for a girl? Yeah, I can bet one of two things is happening right there. It's either a new car or a new wife. Just saying. I'm just kidding. But that's basically what Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus, not to get a new car or a new wife. He's saying, hey, you guys are working hard. You have a strong biblical doctrine and background. All that's great, church. But here's the problem. You don't love me anymore. You've lost that loving feeling. You're immersed in religious activity for activity's sake. You're not doing what you're doing because you love me. And Jesus says, that's the main problem. So somewhere along the way, in the midst of their godly busyness and standing up for truth, somehow, some way, along the way, they left Christ out of their church. Think about that. They left him out of their church. I ran across this quote, quote from a guy named Michael Horton that seems to apply to the Ephesians just as well as it does to us today. But listen to what he says. He says, we can lose Christ by distraction as easily as by denial. Think about that. We can lose Christ by distraction as easily as by denial. I think that's what happened to this church in Ephesus. They got distracted away from Jesus. And in the process, they lost him. They actually lost sight of Jesus. So how do we get that back? John tells us three things in verse 5. He starts out with a uh, very critical word, consider. Consider how far you have fallen. And notice the exclamation point right there. He's trying to drive home a point. Then he says, repent. And do the things you did at first. He says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, he says, I will put your light out. So the first thing, if you're taking notes, that John is trying to tell us is we need to remember. I know the scripture says to consider. But remember how far you have fallen. How far you have fallen. Remember how it used to be maybe in your marriage? Have you seen married couples, the longer they're married, they kind of seem to drift into this kind of just going through the motions type of thing? That when they first started out in marriage, they were loving each other. Uh, they were attentive to one another. They used to spend a whole lot of time together, go out of their way to do nice little things that each other weren't expecting. They would do all these awesome things just because they were so much in love. But now, not so much. Everything they do all of a sudden is done out of duty, you might say. They feel like they have to do them, not because they want to do them anymore. Ladies, remember when you used to love to spend time with him? 
Remember when you used to love to tell people about him that wanted to listen and even some that didn't want to listen? Remember how your mind was always upon him and couldn't wait to spend more time with him? What about your zeal for the Lord? And I'm not just talking to the ladies here. What about you guys? How about your zeal for the Lord? Remember how at one time you were so excited to read God's Word, to spend time in prayer? Remember how excited you were at one time to maybe uh, be a part of a ministry in the church? Remember when you wanted to talk about Jesus to everyone, anyone that would listen and some that didn't want to listen? Remembering what you once had can be a good thing when it leads you to action, going in the right direction. He says, now look how far you have fallen away. Then he says, once you've realized that, you need to do the second thing, repent. This is where you have to decide to change your mind and change your heart. You've got to change your mind and change your heart, walk in a new direction to see things change. The only problem is sometimes we get way too comfortable with where we're living, how we're living. We're happy with where we're at. We don't want to change. Then he goes and tells them the third thing, repeat. He says, then do what you did at first. Do what you did at first. In marriage counseling, marriage counselors will tell couples a lot of time, act as if you love that spouse, even if you don't feel like you love that spouse. And I'm not talking about abusive situations here, but those couples that have lost that loving feeling. Many times I'd say it's easier to act yourself into a new way of feeling than it is to feel yourself into a new way of acting. What I'm saying is take a step of action in the right direction. You've got to take a step. It's not going to be automatic. You've got to take a step in the right direction to show your love. This is a true story. My mother-in-law told me about a time when she was living over in uh, Rockville, Indiana years ago, and she met uh, this uh, married couple. They had the worst marriage in the world, she said. I mean, they hated each other. They despised each other. They couldn't stand to look at one another. Uh, He was always shouting profanities to his wife. Um, And one day, Jean, she was going to church at the time, invited this lady to go to church with her. The lady went to church. She loved going to church, started going to church on her own. And uh, one day, this lady walked up to the pastor and said uh, she loved church, she loved God, but she hated her husband. She said, I hate my husband. She says, I want to get a divorce. The pastor said, well, wait a minute. Let's slow down just a minute. He said, let me challenge you to do something. He said, what's the one thing that you like about your husband? She thought for a second. She said, there's not one thing. There's nothing that I like about my nasty husband. I don't like anything about him. She says that, he said, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a small thing. But come up with one thing and tell him about it. Let him know. The lady thought the pastor was nuts, but she agreed to at least give it a try. Well, the next morning, the man came down for breakfast. He's sitting there reading his paper, drinking his coffee, totally ignoring her like he does every morning. She's rolling through her mind. What could I say nice to him this morning? I can't think of anything. And all of a sudden, she blurts out, I like your hair. Well, she didn't even think he heard her. She didn't acknowledge, he didn't acknowledge her at all. Um, he didn't think... Uh, He didn't act or react, so she said it again. I like your hair. Well, he drops the paper, and he said, what the blankety-blank is wrong with you? And then he gets up, and he leaves, uh, doesn't say goodbye, doesn't say thank you, um, and walks out of the room. She thought, boy, that was a big waste of time. Wow, I think I hate him more now than I did before. Well, the next morning, he came down to the kitchen table with his hair all slicked back, really nice this time. And she noticed it right away, and she said, wow, I really do like your hair today. And for the first time in 15 years, he looked at her and he said, thank you. He said, thank you. The woman kept up her complimenting him every day. 
uh, she kept going to church. And uh, fast forward a couple months, he, uh, he asked if he could go to church with her. He started going to church with her, and within a few months, God got a hold of his heart. God got a hold of their marriage. He healed their marriage. And this couple actually started teaching a class for other married couples that had their marriage that was in trouble. I mean, God did a miracle in their marriage, and they're still serving God today. True story. God's still a miracle-working God when it comes to healing marriages, healing relationships. But I'll say it didn't happen overnight. It did take time. But that marriage didn't get in such a horrible condition overnight either. It also took time. But think about it. God's the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's still a healing God. And healing is possible, but it has to begin in here. It has to begin in your heart and in your mind. You have to take a step in the right direction. And as a married couple, if you want to continue to have that same kind of love that you did when you first started out together as a married couple... You've got to do some of the things that you used to do. How about setting some other things aside and making a date night for yourselves? How about taking a trip together? Really, how about going back to some of the basics? You might say, what are the basics? Well, get God in the center of your relationship. Start reading the Bible together, praying and worshiping. But I really think there's even more to it than that, and really it's simpler than that. I believe we need to start serving. The Bible tells us to serve God and to serve one another. Can you imagine how your marriage could change and get better if you would start serving your spouse? Matthew 22 says, love God with all of your heart. Then when you do that, you're going to love people. When you truly begin to love God with all of your heart, that's when you're ready to step out and love people. So in loving people, Jesus simply wants us to tell them about Him. This is what in the church world it calls evangelism. Evangelism is simply telling others about Jesus Christ. It's actually you, get it, you and I getting up, going out of these four walls and telling people about Christ, loving and caring enough about people to tell them about Jesus. You know, that's kind of hard sometimes to do, but we don't have any trouble telling other people, telling people about other great experiences we've had, right? I mean, I've come to love uh, pizza uh, from Indianapolis, uh, found a pizza place over there that I had never tried before called Bazbo's Pizza. Uh, their pizza is amazing, but I wouldn't have known about that pizza place unless my wife's dad hadn't invited us over there to uh, try it out. We love the pizza. It's amazing. He also invited us to a place called Working Man's Friend over in Indianapolis, a kind of a hole-in-the-wall type of restaurant. Um, it's in a very bad neighborhood. They even have to close the doors uh, late in the afternoon so everybody can get out of there uh, before dark. But you get the best food. You get the best burgers in the world there. Um, but at noontime, everybody shows up. You've got bankers. You've got lawyers. You've got judges. You've got doctors, factory workers, construction workers. You name it, they show up. I said all that to say we only know about those places because Cheryl's dad loved us enough or cared for us enough to invite us to share in that experience. As it's that way in the natural, it's that way in the spiritual. The only problem is, if we're not careful, church culture tells us that we are to actually contain Jesus. That's not what the Scripture says. Scripture says we're to proclaim Jesus. Found people, find people. Found people, find people. That's the best definition of evangelism that I can find. Go back to verse 5. Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He's saying if you don't repent, if you don't return to your first love, he's going to remove the fire of his spirit from your midst. Oh, you can still have your gatherings. You can still have your buildings. 
You're still going to have your programs and your busy schedule, but the power of God's going to be missing. The power of God won't be there. God might just take his hand off the church where all you're doing is going through the motions. I don't ever want to be that kind of a church. Yeah, the preacher can still preach, the choir can still sing, the lights can still shine, the Sunday school can still meet, and the worship team still leads the songs, but God won't be there. God's going to be absent. It'd be religion without relationship. It'd be preaching without power. It would be the church without Christ. Why in the world would we ever want to go there? That's not church at all. Amen? I don't want to ever be that kind of church. And let me show you something as we prepare to close. Jesus ends every letter to every church in the same way. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is saying, I want you to listen to what I'm saying. To the one who is victorious, some translations say, uh, say to the one who overcomes. We ought to underline that because he's using that same word at the end of every uh, letter. He says, I want you all to be victorious. And then he says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus wants us as individuals, think about this. He wants us individually and corporately as a body of Christ, as his church, to live in victory, to walk every day in victory. You want to know what happened to that church in Ephesus? Today, the ruins of that ancient city lie under the murk and the mire of a swamp. Yeah, the church at Ephesus, they died, and that city of Ephesus died right along with it. So what is God saying to us this morning? What's he trying to say to us? I believe he's asking us the same thing he was asking the church in Ephesus to do. I believe he's asking us to remember where we once were. Where we once were. And to come back to the passion that we once had for Jesus. Go back to that moment when you first met Jesus. Remember that day? Remember the stirring in your heart? Remember that adoration that you had for the Savior? Remember that overwhelming feeling of love that you felt? You remember how grateful you were for that awesome forgiveness that Jesus gave you for your sins? You remember how at that moment nothing else really mattered but Jesus? This morning I believe Jesus wants you and I both, we, us to go back and remember that moment in time and having that in our memory, I believe He wants us to come back to Him. Come back to Him, come back to our first love, to the place and time in our lives where Jesus was everything to us. That's where he wants us this morning. Amen? You might feel like you're already there, and praise God for that. But I want to say we can always draw closer to him. How far have you drifted from him by the distractions of life? How far have you drifted from him? He wants you to come back. Could you bow your hearts in prayer? Lord God, I pray that you would convict all of our hearts. Help us to see any area where that we have basically lost our first love, that we've lost our love and our passion for you. Father, I pray that you would revive that love and that passion. Bring us back to that place where you were everything to us. And Father God, I pray for those marriages that are struggling today, that are in trouble. I pray for those relationships that are in trouble. And I pray, Lord God, that you would lead them and guide them back together. That they would come back to their first love for one another. But even greater than that, I believe you're sending us the message that we need to all come back to our first love and relationship with you. Father God, if we've drifted any distance from you, I pray you would bring us back. I pray that we would come back with a passion like we've never had for you before. 
Thank you, Lord God, for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love for us. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.